Well, as we prepare tonight to call a feast and call it holy to the Lord, as we eat and lift up our forks and our glasses together and say, thank you, God, for what you have given us this past year, we prepare our hearts for that by looking at a psalm that many of you read in your Bible reading plans this week, uh, which gives to us many reasons that he is worthy of this kind of praise and worthy of this kind of thanks. And even as we do it, we probably need to acknowledge that a growing number of people, a growing number of us even here in the room, are uh, are growing more and more uncomfortable with Thanksgiving and with the whole idea of it and what it is that we're doing on it. And part of what I pray the Lord does is just help us with that to celebrate the good things that he has done, despite the great obstacles that are there to having a good Thanksgiving. Here are some of the things that I'm I'm thinking of. Uh, Some of us paid a little bit of attention in history class, and a lot of us didn't pay very much attention at all. And we have these leftover memories of what the original Thanksgiving was about, right? The pilgrims, the original settlers, and many of the natives in Massachusetts sitting down and having a meal together of peace to thank God for the harvest. And some of us have a vague idea of how that went afterwards. It didn't go great for everybody afterwards. There's a lot of spread of disease, a lot of wars. Soon there was spreading diseases to each other and later hurling spears and bullets at each other didn't go well. And a lot of people wound up being the bad guys and there weren't a whole lot of good guys in that story. And some of us look back on it and say, why are we celebrating still that difficult heritage that we have now as a country? That makes it hard for some to celebrate Thanksgiving. For others, It's difficult because we have seen so many examples of really bad gluttony on Thanksgiving, right? Uh, It's one thing to have a a holy meal to God and sit down and eat 2,000 calories worth of turkey and mashed potatoes and say, yes, thank you, God. It's another thing when your uncle is making jokes about vomiting up his food so that he can eat more food, right? That makes it tough to have a good Thanksgiving. Sometimes you grow up seeing that kind of stuff, and then you're looking at these big meals, and you're like, is this even even righteous? Like, what? So that makes it tough, right, to enjoy a good time. Another reason it's hard is that, you know, some of us have extended families where everybody gets along and it's harmonious, and when you get together, you have a good time. Uh, And for the other 95% of us, it is not that way when we get together with our extended families, right? And I know some of you have particular people that you are going to see this Thursday, and you're not sure how it's going to go because things aren't always great in the extended family. And still others of you, this is your first November in the United States, and you're asking, what is this Thanksgiving? You Americans are crazy. I don't understand this, but I can't wait to try it out, right? So we got all these obstacles in the way of us just doing what we love to do as a church all the time, to sit down, to eat a meal together, to say, God has given us each other, and he's given us a lot of other good things this year. Let's remember that, and let's thank him. That is why we are going to look this morning at a psalm that gets to the heart of the act of thanksgiving, a psalm that shows us how very good he is. We don't have to have pilgrims and jokes about gluttony and even a Thanksgiving Day parade with balloons and all of that to sit down and say together, God is good. He has given us so much. To try to count the good things he has given us, 
it's like trying to count the raindrops while they're falling, right? It's just, it feels like a lost cause to even try. And yet we will number some of them tonight. Uh, Let's let this psalm remind us how good the Lord is, how worthy he is of our thanks and our praise. And along the way, I'll throw in a little bit of a primer on holidays and why Christians even have holy days and why we would bother with something like Thanksgiving in the first place. Let's let the Lord speak to us through Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the broken heart, and he binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars, and he gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares the rain for the earth. He makes the grass to grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives the snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. And he makes the winds to blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The words of the Lord. Through this psalm, the Lord simply shows us many reasons that he is worthy of our thanks and worthy of our praise. May he use this word to fill our halls with hearts of thanksgiving and songs of praise later in this worship service and this evening as we gather to feast to our Lord. The psalm alternates between calling us to sing praises to God and at one point songs of thanksgiving to God and giving us many reasons he's worthy of that praise. Four times it calls us to sing praises to him like this in verse 1, then in verse 7, then in verse 12, and then at the very end of the psalm. And then sandwiched between them are all of these sets of reasons he is so worthy of this praise. Those reasons add up quickly. They're they're like blasts at a fireworks show. You see the way he builds up Jerusalem and boom, it's like an explosion of fireworks. You're going, oh wow. But before you can even finish drinking that one and how great it is, there's another one going over here. And oh, he knows the numbers of the stars in the sky and he knows the names of all the stars. And then off goes another one. He doesn't delight in our strength, but in the fact that we fear him over and over again, and the end effect of it is that there are just an overwhelming number of reasons to praise our God. It's the same feeling that an eight-year-old has halfway through a fireworks show. 
wow, right? This is awesome. Our God is incredible. And I think that's the real point of the song. There are just an overwhelming number of reasons that God is worthy of our praise. The song 10,000 Reasons has a point, right? We will spend eternity unfolding 10,000 and then 10,000 more and then 10,000 more glories of our Lord. He's, He's that good. And what I hope it does to you this morning as we walk through it, I hope it leaves you feeling like an eight-year-old at a, at a fireworks show, just looking up to the Lord and saying, wow, I cannot even remember all of those blasts of fireworks I just saw. But wow, our Lord is incredible. That would fill us with the thanksgiving we need to finish out this worship service right and to feast rightly to the Lord tonight. Verse 1 says something really profound about this kind of worship that I want to point out to you. Uh, You can see in verse 1 the words praise the Lord and then that it is good to sing praises to our God. And then a really neat pair of words here. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. So to sing praise to God and to offer really all of the worship that he calls from us is both pleasant and and fitting. That means it's good and it feels good. Now, how much of life is really like that, right? Think of your favorite food. I bet it's bad for you, isn't it? Right? Is it not true? It seems like everything good is bad for you, isn't it? Right? If it feels good or it tastes good, it must not be good. It almost feels like life works that way. And here the Lord says, well, here is at least one thing that is not that way in life. To engage with God in genuine praise and worship. To say he is good and to delight in him. That feels good and it is good. That's true of singing to him. And as we gather together in worship like this, in as much as we engage with him in genuine worship, it is enjoyable. Uh, it's not very fun if you don't engage, right? It's not very fun to stand there while everyone else sings around you and just wait for it to finish. That's not very fun. But to get a glimpse of God's glory and lift up praise to him with a worshipful heart, that, that is fun, right? Same thing with prayer. It's not very fun to bow your head and just wait while everyone finishes praying, but it is delightful to engage with God in genuine prayer. This is true of all of the acts of worship that the Lord calls from us, and that even includes feasting, like what we will do tonight. Uh, The Lord doesn't just call song from his people, although this psalm only calls singing from his people. Uh, Through the whole lens of the Bible, we have all sorts of worship that is offered up to the Lord. In the Old Testament, for these people, for the people of Israel, there were sacrifices that were offered in worship to the Lord. Uh, And there were festivals that were held, feasts that were prescribed in the law. On this day of this month, you'll have this feast, and here's how you do it, and do it in worship of me, and enjoy it, right? And on this day, you'll have this feast, and enjoy it. Uh, There are songs that are called from his people, prayers that are called from his people. In the New Testament, The sacrifices are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They all pointed forward to him. He has offered himself in sacrifices, so we don't offer sacrifices anymore. We're still called to offer singing in worship to him. We're still called to offer prayer. And the holy days, the feast days, are a little different. They were prescribed in the Old Testament, this one on this day. The New Testament gives freedom to the Christian to declare any day holy and holy hold a feast of worship to the Lord. 
In fact, Colossians 2.16 gives us this freedom and says not to let anyone pass judgment on you in terms of a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath or any of these. If, If you are a father in your house, you have the authority to say, okay, our son was born five years ago today. We're going to have a birthday party, and we are going to thank God for this son, right? You can consecrate a feast right there and have a party and have cake and thank God for what he has done for you. With this freedom that God gives us to hold feasts like this and have holy days like this, we have, as Christians, invented a whole lot of holidays, right? Uh, we chose the day for Easter. God didn't prescribe the day for Easter and say, you got to do it on this day. But we said, you know what? We want to celebrate the resurrection on this day. And we have in the pages of the New Testament license to do that and have holy days. Christmas, most of you know this. We, we made up the festivals of Christmas, right? We picked the day ourselves. Probably wasn't the day Jesus was born on. And we said, we're going to celebrate the incarnation, the birth of Jesus on this day. And all around the world, the church celebrates the birth of Jesus on that day. Uh, Here in the States, one of those days is Thanksgiving, where we just say as a church, now y'all know this, but Thanksgiving isn't actually till Thursday, but we said as a church, we're going to do it on Sunday night, right? And we have the authority and power to do that as the church of God. On this Sunday night, we're going to get together. We are going to look back on everything God gave us this year. We're going to give thanks to him. We're going to eat a big meal. We're going to enjoy it. And as we do that, it falls into this same category of Psalm 147.1. It's both pleasant and fitting. It's, if you like turkey, it's good to sit down and eat Thanksgiving dinner, right? That, that feels good. And it doesn't just, it's not just godless gluttony. It is fitting to sit back and say, God, that was good. You've given us a lot. Thank you. So as we gather tonight and as we sing at the end of this worship service, these these words are true of us, a song of praise, a holy feast to the Lord, both pleasant and fitting. And so now we turn to the many reasons that the Lord is worthy of our praise and our thanks. I'm just going to give you five from this psalm, uh, but the glory of a fireworks show is that you see a thousand blasts and you walk away remembering only five of them, right? And uh, one of the beauties here is that you're going to see a few things in here that I'm not going to talk about. And the person next to you will see a few other things that you won't see. There's just so many reasons to praise our Lord. I'll narrow it down to five here, five reasons our Lord is worthy of overwhelming praise and thanks. The first comes in verses two through six. I need to give you the backstory before I read it. This psalm was probably written after the Babylonian exile. If you were here last week, you read uh, with us of just the horrors of the Babylonian exile. It was a dark time in their history. The people were essentially taken away out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and forced to live in another place, treated very terribly along the way, uh, living as exiles in another land. Uh, What we didn't talk about then was that 70 years later, a new king took over and he let them go back. This is King Cyrus of Persia, because Persia took over Babylon by that time. He let them go back. So 70 years later, they're coming back to Jerusalem. But they're coming back brokenhearted, sad. Many of these people are 60 years old and have never seen Jerusalem before. And they get there and it is a pile of ruins. The temple's broken, the wall is broken down. And they're all just weary from 70 years of exile, and they're brokenhearted. And the imagery we get in verses 2 through 6 
tells us that it was the Lord that gathered them back together, the Lord that began to build up Israel, and the Lord that gave individual care to each one of those brokenhearted exiles. Here's what it says. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Can you see them coming back after exile? He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He ministered to them in their pain. He determines the number of stars and gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. Now, you see there the care that he gave to each of those exiles, bringing them back into Jerusalem. And he compares it to the individual attention he gives each of the stars in the sky. It's not the first time in the scriptures that the people of Israel are compared to the stars in the sky. The Lord told Abraham, look at all those stars. One day your descendants will be like that. Well, here they are, an innumerable number of people, and they're comparing themselves to the stars, saying the same way that the Lord knows the number of all of those stars, he is caring for each of us, binding up each of the broken heart. In the same way that he knows the names of all of these stars, he knows our names, and he's caring for us, and he brought us back to Jerusalem. That's a God that is worthy of our thanks and our praise. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? Did you know that mankind does not even have a reliable estimate as to how many stars are in the universe? That's why you don't know how many stars are in the universe. Nobody does. Uh, There is a mission that is supposedly coming to a close right now from the European Space Agency uh, called Project Gaia. It was a five-year mission that launched in 2016, so it must be wrapping up right about now. Uh, this is uh, either a probe or a satellite, whatever you would call it, that is basically hanging out in the shadow of the Earth and rotating around the sun at the same pace as the Earth so that it stays in the shadow of the Earth. And what it is doing is for these five years, these five rotations around the sun, it is just looking out into the darkness of our galaxy. And it's making a 3D map of about a billion stars that it has found. And so we have now at our disposal a three-dimensional map in great detail of a billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, which they think makes up about 1% of the Milky Way galaxy. And the word, the official word from the mission as they were launching it was... When this mission is complete, we will be, it said, one step closer to a reliable estimate of the number of stars in the universe. That is how far we are from knowing how many stars there are in the universe. We are now one step closer to a reliable estimate of how many stars there are. We've got 1% of our galaxy mapped. We don't even know how many galaxies there are out there in the universe and have no idea how many stars there are. The Lord says, not only do I know how many there are, I numbered each one of them and I know their names. And you have no probe or satellite that can discern the names that I gave to each of these stars. 
Now, that is an overwhelming attention to detail that our God can have, right? If we can't even estimate how many there are, he has named them all. That gives us a little window into how he can be caring for each one of us right now, even though we are all so very different. There are probably 100 people in this room. And I bet if somebody asked you at 2 o'clock this afternoon, hey, who were all the people who came to Sunday worship today? Uh, you probably couldn't name everybody who was here, could you? I can see all of you, and I won't be able to remember everybody who was here at two o'clock this afternoon, right? Our capacity to just take in that much, it's just not there. But the Lord can look at each one of us and say, I know you, I know your name, I know what you need, I know your brokenheartedness right now. And I can care for you with an individual level of care that will make you think you are the only one I am caring for right now. This is what the Lord does. He binds up the brokenhearted. He gathers us together like this and cares for his people with the same level of detail he gives to each individual star in the sky. Now that is overwhelming understanding, isn't it? And that is a reason to praise and thank our God. That alone is reason enough to sing out with all we have to him and to hold a feast like we are going to hold tonight. That's number one, the individual attention and care he gives to us that is beyond our understanding. The second reason this psalm gives us that the Lord is worthy of our thanks and our praise is the way that he provides through us through weather and through seasons. The way he provides through weather and through seasons. We see this verse in, first in verses 8 through 9, which emphasize the way that he provides for our needs through the weather and the season. Let me read that to you. Verse 8 says, He covers the heavens with clouds, and he prepares rain for the earth, and makes the grass grow on the hills, and he gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So you can see the progression there, right? He brings the clouds, the clouds bring the rain, the rain makes the grass grow, the grass feeds the beast, right? Everybody gets taken care of and provided for. That's the emphasis there. Verses 16 through 18 are a little different. It's on the amazement of a winter storm. Let's read that one. I'm going to back up to verse 15 because that's when he gives the command. He sends out his command to the earth and his word runs swiftly. He gives the snow like wool. And he scatters the frost like ashes. Can you see it coming down? He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? And he sends out his word and melts them. And he makes the wind blow and the waters to flow. So here the emphasis is just on how powerful and amazing those winter storms are. You don't go out in those really at all. But if you do, certainly not without a coat, right? Because who can endure his cold when he brings it? But then he brings the spring and he melts it at his word. And all of a sudden, everything is growing beautifully in the ground again. It is God who brings all of these wonderful things. So bring them together. And there's an emphasis there that the Lord is using seasons and he's using weather to provide for all of his creatures, including you and including me. We got just a little taste of that last week, didn't we? We were gathering here, and as we were gathering in the lobby, you could look out and you could see all those ice crystals like crumbs just coming down, right? All that beautiful snow coming down, the first one of the year. 
Soon it will be six inches that's on the ground, right? And we'll be shoveling it. Some of you are very excited at the thought of that, and some of you are like, oh, just hanging your heads, right? But one way or another, that gets a reaction out of you, doesn't it? There's going to be snow on the ground, and maybe if the Lord wills it, there will be a foot or two feet at some point this year, and maybe all the roads will close down, and we won't be able to do life together for a little while until some of that snow goes away, but... As is promised in Genesis 9, the seasons will continue and eventually spring will come and it will all melt and go away. And all of a sudden, all those fields will be alive and growing again. This is the cycle the Lord uses to provide for us. Who does every bit of that? Who fashioned every single snowflake? The Lord God did that, right? That's a God who is worthy of our praise. That's a God that we should sing to with all that we have. The third reason the Lord is worthy of our praise is that he does not delight in us because of what we can do for him. He delights in us because of our worship and our faith. And he says this in verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of a horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of man, But the Lord takes his pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. This is good news for those of us who know we are not strong enough to earn God's favor, isn't it? The Lord says, my delight is not in the great. It is in those who know how small they are. The Lord says to the one who looks to him, and says, God, look what I have done. God, look what I am able to do. The Lord says, I don't find delight in you. But to the one who says, God, I need you, he says, my delight rests in you. That is an overwhelmingly good God For people like us that know we do not have the strength to meet his requirements, the strength to find his favor. We see that again in verses 10 and 11. First, that his delight isn't in the strength of a horse or in the legs of a man. Uh, You may not realize this, but your legs are incredibly strong. Uh, If you can, most of us can get up and and we can still walk. And I think all of us in the room can at least remember a time when we could walk with strength, right? And and just to give yourself an idea of how capable and strong your legs are, just imagine yourself trying to walk on your hands instead, right? Holding your body weight up with your arms, right? Is, Is that even possible for even one of us in the room, right? Our arms are not that strong. How much core strength that would take. Incredible gymnasts can do that. That's because it takes a lot of strength to hold up your whole body and to move around and even jump and run around. And yet, for those of us that can do it, when you stand up, every time you do it, your legs just do that. That's strong. Like, we don't even think most of us about the weight that we're putting on our legs. That's because God made human legs really strong. Even though it's that strong, even though horses are incredibly strong and fast and you don't want to get kicked by one, even still the Lord says, that's not where my delight is. That's incredible. It's delightful. He says, it's not where my delight is. He says his delight is in a different sort of person. 
On one hand, in verse 11, those who fear him. And on the other hand, those who hope in his steadfast love. Often the Psalms and other poetry in the Bible uh, say the same thing twice in two lines like that. That's what's going on here. The ones that fear him, the ones that hope in his steadfast love. Different ways of saying the same thing. Uh, to fear God is just to tremble with joy before his glory. Right? You get a little glimpse of how awesome he is. And I don't know if you've ever seen a rocket launch or a really big waterfall or anything that's made you go, oh, that is, you shake a little bit and you're happy to have that sort of emotion before God and worship of him. That's what it means to fear God. And to hope in his steadfast love, well, this word steadfast love is one of the very important words in the Hebrew Bible uh, that speaks of his covenant faithfulness. Uh, the fact that he will not break his promises to us because that's who he is, and who he is is love for us. So it is that, that deep nature of God that just loves his people and just says, I will never, ever break my promises to him. That is his steadfast love, his unfailing love, his covenant love, as different translations will put it. Some of us place our hope there, right? We say, if I have any hope in eternity, it's in the fact that God keeps his promises and God loves me, right? It's not going to be in my strength. It's going to be in his character. Well, that's what it means to hope in his steadfast love. And those are really the same thing, to, to hope, to have faith in his love for us and his rescue of us is really one and the same with standing before him and worshiping him in delight because we don't have to be scared of him. He is good. That person, the person who looks up to him in worship, the person who says, I place my hope in you and your character, well, that is what the Bible calls faith, and that's the person that the Lord takes delight in. That's one of those truths that prepares us for the gospel. The Old Testament does a lot to prepare us for the gospel of Jesus. And uh, that's one of them. The, the pages of the Old Testament show us, us of our need for a redeemer and the fact that the Lord delights in those who trust him, not in those who can do great things for him. That will be multiplied when Jesus walks the earth and says, I didn't come to be a doctor for the healthy. I came to be a doctor for the sick. Right. When the Lord says not, come to me all of you who are the best of the best because nothing but the best is good enough for me, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Why does he say things like that? Because he doesn't delight in us because of what we can do for him. He delights in us because he loves us and we look to him in faith and worship him. Those are the souls that he wants, not the great ones, but the ones who know how small they are and look to him in faith. So the call of the gospel then is to stop trying to show God how great you are and earn your way before him, but instead to look to him and say, Lord, I don't have what it takes to earn your favor, right? All I have is that you sent your son Jesus to die for me and pay for my sins. If it were not for your unfailing love, I'd have nothing. So faith looks to this Jesus and says, all my hope's there. All my faith is there. 
If I am going to be right with God, I must look to him. That's faith. And, and if you would trust Jesus Christ this morning in faith, that is where I call you to place your head. Pin all of your hopes for God's favor on Jesus Christ who came, lived, died, and rose to save you from your sins. That's the call of the gospel. On the other hand, the Lord gives us this imagery here of the strength of a horse. And there are people who place a lot of weight on the strength or even the speed of a horse. Uh, I, I used to live in Louisville, Kentucky, where Churchill Downs is, where the Kentucky Derby gets run every year. And someone who was a tour guide at Churchill Downs told me a story once that, that really sticks with me. Uh, you know, they, they bet on all these horses and who's going to be the fastest and who's going to run the race and they've got all kinds of money that goes into it. She told me the story of a rich man who walked over to what I think is called the promenade. It is this circle where they take all of the horses and kind of march them around so that the people who are betting on the horses can see them in person and verify like, okay, it really does have really nice looking hooves or whatever it is they're looking for in a horse. They can see it, right? They can look right at the horse's mouth, you know, as, as the phrase often goes, so that they can place their bets with confidence. Well, she told the story of a rich man who was there at the circle there looking at all of the horses and he came across one horse that he was just amazed with and oh, look at its legs, it must be so strong, and oh, yeah, its nostrils really are huge, that's great, you know, whatever it is, they look into this stuff, look at the horseshoes that it's got, and this is a great horse, but there's one thing that he wasn't sure about, he had one reservation about this horse. I don't remember what it was, I hope that doesn't ruin the story for you, but it really bothered him, whatever it was, and so he sits there and thinks for a minute, and he's about to bet a lot of money on this thing, and pulls out his phone and he calls his, his vet back home and uh, he tells him, the whole, okay, they got this horse here in front of me. It's like this, it's got great legs and great nostrils and it's a really good horse, but I'm not so sure about this one thing. Uh, what do you think? Is that a big deal? And the vet back home says, well, I mean, I really, I really can't tell you that without looking at the horse. And the rich man said, okay, get on a plane. And the vet canceled all his appointments for a day, went to the airport, got on a plane, flew to Louisville, went to Churchill Downs, stood in front of the horse and said, okay, here's what I think. And the man compensated him very handsomely for doing that. That's a lot of value to place on the strength of a horse, isn't it? It's a lot of delight to place in the speed of a horse. And who knows how much that man bet on that horse. What I want you to know is that if you would look to the Lord Jesus in trembling and joyful faith and say, all my hope is in you, he says to you, I delight in you more than that man delighted in that horse. His delight is not in the strength of a horse. His delight is in those who fear him. His delight is in those who trust in his steadfast love. May that be true of you, church. This is really the best reason of all to praise him, isn't it? Of all of them. The fact that he doesn't delight in me because of what I can do for him. He delights in me because he loves me. It doesn't get much better than that. If two more. The fourth reason that the Lord is worthy of our praise and our thanks, uh, the security and abundance that he gives to us. He gives us a lot. 
And he keeps us safe through all sorts of dangers. We can all look back on the last year and say, the Lord brought me through a lot. He says this to us in verses 13 and 14. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. The bars of their gates, that's what kept their town safe. The modern equivalent would be the deadbolt in your door that keeps your house safe. And good and honest police who keep your neighborhood safe so that you don't have to live in as much fear as you would have to live in if we were a lawless nation. On the other hand, it speaks of our children being built up within us and being fed with the finest of wheat. This speaks of just how much he gives to us. Almost all of us can say, the Lord gave me more to eat than I needed to survive in the last year. Right? Most of us could probably say we could survive on half of what the Lord gave us in the last year. We can all say the Lord brought us through the last year. Some of us live in really safe neighborhoods, and we may lock the deadbolt out of due diligence, but if we forget one night and we wake up one morning and see that the deadbolt was never locked, we don't really get scared because we don't live in dangerous neighborhoods. And the question we got to ask is, who gave that safety to our streets? Who, who made our street that safe that we don't even be scared if we didn't lock the door? Well, the Lord made your neighborhood that safe. Who provided the police to keep the neighborhood that safe? The Lord did that, didn't he? Others of us live in neighborhoods that are not so safe, right? And we'd lock the deadbolt every night because we know we're going to need to, right? Who made that deadbolt strong and made it last through the night? The Lord did that. The Lord kept you safe through another night. Some of you had to call the police because there have been things that have happened near your house that you needed to call the police about. Who, who provided them for you? Who gave honest police that you can trust to come into your house and not abuse you or hurt you? The Lord gave you honest police. All of us are here and we are safe today because the Lord brought us through another year. And we can thank the Lord for that, even as we have been through some crazy stuff in the last year. We can say with thankfulness, God has brought me through the last year. Those of us that have children can say, God gave me and my children far much more than we need. And we can all say, God gave me much more than we need. That is the reason to praise and thank him that is closest to Thanksgiving Day, right? That's what we really celebrate on Thanksgiving. He has provided for us abundantly. And some of you may be even thinking right now of certain things he's done for you to preserve you, right? Ways he's healed you or ways he provided for you through something difficult. Uh, I want you to know tonight at our Thanksgiving dinner, we will have a time when you can stand up and tell the whole church that and thank God in front of everybody. I encourage you to spend the afternoon thinking of just what is it that I have that I ought to thank the Lord for? Perhaps he'll put something on your heart that you can give him thanks in front of everybody for. So there's our fourth reason, the security and the abundance that he has given to us. Fifth and last, we praise God and we thank him because of the treasures of his word and especially because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he did not have to bring to us, but he did bring to us because he wanted to. We see this toward the end of the psalm. Verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, that is the people of Israel, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with us with any other nation and they do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The people of God, the descendants of Jacob, the people of Israel, had 
more and more through their history, the Old Testament uh, unfolded and revealed to them. And the Old Testament taught them how great God was. Other nations didn't have access to that, didn't have a good picture of how great he was, but they did in God's word. And it taught them God's good ways so they could build their nation in God's good ways and have good laws. And it taught them their need for a savior and the promise that one day a savior would come to them. They had all of that revealed to them and they had to look around at the other nations and say, the other nations don't have this word like we do. They're welcome to come in and learn it, but it's not there. And, and when you look at that and you just square with that honestly, it makes you realize that we're not any different from them, right? If God didn't have to bring this good word to them, well, that means he didn't have to bring it to me either. And I didn't deserve to hear what I heard from his word. As Christians, we have not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament also. And that tells us even more. Not just our need for a Savior and that one will come, but the good news that one has come. And not just that, but the name of that Savior, Jesus Christ, the sweetest name of all you and I know. And everyone gathered here this morning has heard his name proclaimed and been called to trust in him in faith. And good, most of us have trusted in him in faith and have received the gospel. And we have to look at the truth here that God has revealed something to us that he has not revealed to everybody. This is one of the hardest truths of the Christian faith to square. There are people in Greenwood, Indiana and people in the other side of the world I've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, on one hand, I hope that fires you up and makes you want to go take it to them. That's one way we should be reacting to that. But we also have to look a hard truth in the eye and say, well, wait a minute. If he's not unjust not to bring the gospel to them, that means he didn't have to give it to me either, did he? He just, he just did. Friends, we have received a message that we didn't deserve to receive. Some of us have heard and denied a message that we didn't deserve to even hear in the first place. But how good is this God that he opens up his word for us, that he shows to us the wonders of the gospel. What does that tell you about our God? That tells you that he wants us to come to him. He wants us to be saved. He wants us to delight in him. And this is reason to offer him praise and offer him thanks that he and his good providence chose to bring the gospel to you so that you would have an opportunity to respond to it in faith. Our God is good, isn't he? So there's a little bit of the fireworks show. You can read that Psalm 10 times and you'll see another reason he's worthy of praise that he didn't talk about this morning. But now we go to applying it. I want to ask the musicians to come on up now. We're going to pray for a shorter amount of time, so you're all going to want to come up now. Uh, we'll spend less time in prayer and response here and more in singing. Not because prayer isn't good. It's great. But because this psalm calls us to sing in praise. And so if your heart has been stirred, if you have seen the fireworks show this morning, if you know how good the Lord is, I encourage you to respond with full-throated praise. And if you're willing to, return tonight and have a feast with us as we give thanks to our Lord together. Let's pray very briefly, and you guys can start playing whenever you're ready, even during the prayer if you want to.